So we're walking through some of the post-resurrection stories. And today's is a real familiar one. And, and we can find it in different places. Luke carries um, a story of this as well. But today we're looking in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 to 29. Hear these words. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. The word of God for the people of God. So as we're walking through this week, these weeks of kind of the post-resurrection stories, you know, I, I have to contemplate what happens after Easter. Do we just move on like the resurrection didn't happen? Do we just do all the things and, you know, um, finish our chocolate Easter eggs? Do we finish our chocolate Easter bunnies? Do we throw away the last few hard-boiled eggs? Because frankly, we can't stand to look at them again. I don't know. I don't know. You know, Easter is kind of this, this high church time, and I know that we had, we had a glorious day. And, you know, I did a lot of planning up until Easter. And then I came to the point where I had to think about how do we fill the time between Easter and Pentecost? You know, do we move on? Do we do some great scripture theme? What do, what do we do? I think, though, that we're sometimes a little bit in, in a little bit too much of a hurry to, to move on. That... The idea and the stories around resurrection can do some things for us 
that other stories in the Bible cannot. They can build us up, they can encourage us, they can empower us. So we're going to stay in those stories for a few more weeks. Next week, we'll talk about the women who were at the tomb and how they were the first evangelists. And we'll talk about the, the road to Emmaus and what happened there. So here's a, just kind of a few highlights of some of those sightings, Jesus sightings, I guess we'll call them. Jesus sightings and some of the responses to those, because I think that the responses are just as important as the fact that they happened. So in Matthew, he appears on the path of Mary Magdalene and the other Mary as they run from the angel with fear and great joy to tell the disciples that that's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to go tell them, and their response to Jesus is to take hold of his feet and to worship him. In Matthew as well, Jesus appears to the 11 disciples on the mountain in Galilee where he has asked them to meet him. And the disciples' response was they worshipped him, and then there's this little, little phrase that says, but some doubted. So that's in Matthew 28 if you want to find it. Um, in the story we explored last week, at an unspecified amount of time later, Jesus appears on the shore of the disciples, on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias with the disciples. And you remember that whole thing, the net on the side, if they didn't catch anything, they put it on the other side, they caught things. And Peter's response was to jump in the water to get to Jesus as fast as possible. So, we, so, so far we have um, the taking hold of, of Jesus' feet and worshiping, worshiping and doubting, and now jumping into the water um, to get to Jesus as fast as possible. In Luke, the first time that Jesus pops in is when he joins his two disciples on the one that we're going to do in a couple weeks, and that's on the road to Emmaus. After challenging them and teaching them, he breaks bread and blesses that bread and breaks it. And in the moment they recognize him, he pops out again. He vanishes, and they're not sure what had actually happened. So kind of more, their response would be more of kind of a bafflement. And we'll talk about that. Earlier in this chapter of John, um, Jesus suddenly stands behind Mary Magdalene as she looks into the tomb while she's talking with two angels. Her initial response is to mistake him for the gardener. Um, when he calls her name, she recognizes him and moves to embrace him. Isn't it interesting that there are all of these responses, all of these things happen after people um, see the risen Lord or realize that it is the risen Lord. Um, and our scripture today happens later in the evening, the same day that the, the one um, with Mary Magdalene happens, Jesus pops in, passing through locked doors, standing in the midst of the disciples' fear fest. Um, when he shows them his hands and his feet, their response is to rejoice. So another response. A week later, Jesus once again pops in, passing through shut doors to stand before Thomas and the rest of the disciples, inviting Thomas to place his hands, his hands in his wounds and to kind of to verify his identity. 
And Thomas's response finally is to believe. So this is the story that we're going to kind of look at today. This, you know, the disciples in the, the room with their fear fast, and then there's Thomas who says he won't believe, and then Thomas finally believes. So that's where we are. There's some things that I really noticed about this passage, this story. First, John makes it clear that after the crucifixion of Jesus, the disciples were overcome by fear and dis despair. This is the response we might ex expect from this group. After all, these were scary times. Do you agree? For them, it was a scary time. Um, and they had watched the events that led up to the crucifixion. They saw Jesus being um, arrested. They saw him being flogged. They saw him being crucified. And they saw him die. They saw all of these things. And now they were facing the uncertainty of moving forward um, in their new reality without Jesus. So as we enter the story, we notice that these same disciples found themselves alone to, to kind of cope with this reality, I guess is the only way to put it, where it was kind of political and it was kind of scary and it was, they're, they're, they're alone. Jesus has gone somewhere that they don't know where he is. I mean, even if they believe that, that what the women have told them is true, they still don't know where Jesus is. And they're in this room. The door's closed. They had hoped that Jesus' being there meant that the, God's kingdom on earth would happen here and now. And instead, they're in this room all alone. Now, before we come down on the disciples being in this place of fear and despair, I'll point out that we know the end of the story. We know what happens on Easter morning. We know what happened after that. These people, these disciples, aren't sure. Yes, yes, they were told. I, you know, we talk about, particularly in the Gospel of Mark, all the times that Jesus told them what was going to happen. He was going to be, you know, arrested. He was going to be beaten. He was going to be killed, and he was going to raise. And he said that off over and over. But still, if you think for a minute, just a minute in that place, in that time, would, if you were those people, would you believe that? I'm not sure I would. You know, one of the things that um, that comes growing up in the age that we're, we're here is that we're kind of in that place where we believe it when we see it mentality. I don't know about you. When you see someone's changed life or you hear about someone's changed life, do you believe it at face value? Or do you wait to see? Okay, I admit, admit it. I would wait to see that they're really changed. So they, the disciples are in this place. They're afraid and they're despairing.
But Jesus comes and he says what to them? Peace be with you. And then he shows them the evidence that it's true. That the thing that they'd hoped for has happened. And not only that, my friends, not only that, he does, he shows them the proof of this exciting, wonderful thing. And then what does he do? He gives them a gift. He breathes the spirit onto them. He gives them what they need to move forward. Because I think sometimes just one word or just one sermon or just one something isn't enough. We need that kind of that, that spirit to carry us. You know, I could sit up here and I could pe preach the most eloquent sermon. But if it doesn't get into our hearts, we don't change. We don't carry it with us out that door. When I was in seminary, um, one of the things that happened often is I would be sitting in a class, maybe it was a theology class, or maybe it was you know, the history of the church or whatever class, and I would hear all these gigantic um, academic terms being thrown around. Um, one of the, you know, this is the paradigm that means that this theologian was whatever. And, you know, and I would be sitting there wondering, okay, so if when I'm, a, when I'm preaching, how am I going to, to get my message into people's hearts? And so I would raise my hand and I would say, okay, Dr. Ginger or one of the others, how do we interpret what was just said to the people in the pews? And that would start this whole discussion. It got to be, after a while, I just had to raise my hand. And he would say, and Sherry's going to say, Sherry's going to ask, because I think that's the most important. One sermon, one word, one way of looking at things is not enough. That it needs to be relatable, it needs to be understandable, and it needs to have that pesky little spirit behind it. We don't talk a lot about the spirit. We don't, because we tend to be more academic people. In, in the denomination, which I believe in, there's a lot of emphasis that the denomination that I'm, I'm a part of, there's a lot of emphasis on head thinking. And I think that the hardest thing for me to do in seminary was to figure out that it was the heart thinking that was the most important. And so when we're looking at these disciples who are fearful and despairing, is it any wonder that just the fact that they've been told that this will happen wasn't enough. They needed a couple of things. They needed to see that it was true, and they needed the Spirit to help them be ready for what was next. The Holy Spirit is always kind of the, the motivator behind justice issues that the church goes to. It's behind the the equity piece, it's behind, you know, the, 
when we look at ethnicity, when we look at gender, race, class, all of those things, there's got to be kind of this stirring up within us that comes from the spirit. Um, and I think that, I don't know, I think that we try to name the spirit a lot of different things. I think we do. I think we, you know, the kind of the kindred things or the my heart connects with your heart, but I think the spirit is right there. Is it any wonder that when these disciples were sitting in that, that room, I assume it was kind of like an upper room and they were afraid and... Um, despairing and sad and grieving that Jesus came and gave comfort and then sent help. So then we, then we move along in the story where we're told that Thomas isn't there. Now Thomas is an interesting character. If you, this isn't the first time that we encounter Thomas. Did you know that? That we also encounter Thomas, um, I was thinking, in two other times in John. Um, John 14, after Lazarus was um, raised from the dead. And a couple other times, we hear about Thomas, and Thomas you know, we kind of give him that flippant idea of calling him a doubting Thomas. Okay, if you're told that you're a doubting Thomas, is it a good thing? Not really. Not really. But Thomas... is given the same opportunity that those disciples that Jesus came to in the upper room the first time. He's given, he showed those disciples his hands and feet. And yet when Thomas says, I'm not going to believe it till I see it, then we call him Doubting Thomas, but it's the same thing. It's so interesting to me when you look at how this kind of plays out. Here we have the people or the disciples in the upper room. They see Jesus. They go and they tell Thomas. Thomas says, I'm not going to believe it until I see it. And then Thomas has an encounter with Jesus and he believes. Now, when we look at kind of that pattern I'm wondering if that can speak to something that happens in our lives. When you begin to tell someone about Jesus, and when you begin to share your faith, your story, and you're saying that, you know, Jesus is this person to me, and you tell them, often they don't just say, oh, that's a great story, I'll believe too. They have to have that encounter as well. I think that one of the other pieces of that 
encounter with Jesus that they can experience is the fact that we operate as Jesus's hands and feet. So when we encounter someone out at the food pantry and we are being Jesus to them, that can help their belief or at least make them feel like a valuable person or help them feel like a person. With respect to the witness of the resurrected Jesus, Mary Magdalene starts it off. She encounters Jesus. She shares the news. The others don't really buy it until they have their own experience. They become convinced and share it with Thomas. Like the other disciples, Thomas doesn't believe it until he has his own experience. Wow. What does that mean for us? And as we think about it, what, what is next for us? What is the next level? Who, who do we say that Jesus is? We, we keep coming back to that in our, in our looking at the Gospels. Who do we say that Jesus is? And how do we help others have their own experience with Jesus? I believe that it's not the fact that Thomas doubted or even that he demanded seeing Jesus for himself that's important here. I think that it's his believing. Because I think that we all have doubts of some kind or other. I think doubting is kind of a human thing. Martin Luther had what he called kind of the dark night of the soul, where, where he was feeling that God was really distant. And it wasn't until he had an encounter that it all came back in. I think that we, each of us has the potential for darkness. And I think that that darkness comes when things are not going well. And I have to be really honest with you that I don't always feel up. <laughs> I have to kind of chuckle when says, oh, you're always so positive. And I'm like, really? Really? But see what happens when I'm not feeling positive. Um, when, how did I describe to David one day? Dark and spirally. When things are just not going well. Can you name one thing that can help? I'm looking at him. You see, we need each other. And when the Spirit prompts us to be there for each other, that, that helps. And, you know, 
I think that, that that's part of the resurrection story that we can carry with us is that we need each other. And we have powerful stories about how God, how Jesus, how the Spirit interacts with our lives. Belief comes when we encounter the living Lord, whether it's being able to touch hands and feet or being hands and feet. Blown by the wind of the Spirit, moved by compassion and love. And I believe that we, as Christ's hands and feet, can show that to the world out there. And I'll be honest, I know that it's messy when we're serving the world out there. I know that it is when we're serving the world in here. That's just part of the human condition. But I hope that you remember that you are created in the image of God. That that Imago Day is light even in our darkest moments. Because I also know this. When my image of God collaborates with your image of God, when my very center of love collaborates with your center of love, that, that very thing is what changes our world and makes this a better place to be in. I don't know what's next for us here. It's kind of exciting and kind of scary as we get ready to open the apartments there, as we get ready to to think about calling a permanent pastor as we get ready to figure out how to do this thing called church, as we figure out how to balance budget and all of those things that belong to being church. I don't know how that's going to work out. But I do know that good hearts, the Holy Spirit, and collaboration will change our world and lead us in places that will be amazing. May God grant you peace. Jesus said peace three times in that passage we read today. May God grant you peace with the unknown that's the future. May God grant you peace with the known that is now. And may God grant you peace as you show your love to whoever comes by you this day. Amen.